Hey, welcome to The Centre Podcast. We're a church based in Dural, Sydney, who love Jesus and want to share the message of hope that he brings for all people. We pray that you're blessed by this word and that it reveals God's love for you in a new way. Enjoy. Power. Our world is obsessed with power, isn't it? Obsessed with power. In the global political sense, we can look at all the the battles in the South China Sea and as we see a movement in our own time, almost a change of world power, economic power from the United States uh, to China. We can go to another part of the world and we can see Russia and and Ukraine and the the battle they've got there. We're over in the Solomon Islands and and have a look at the at the, rate, at the tension that's been over there, the strife that's there, and, uh, and Honiara has been devastated. Um, just by the way, um, all our team over there are really good, but Honiara is not the same. It's gone back to where it was 20 years ago when the Civil War broke out. But what's that all about? That's about whether or not the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands, a man called Manasseh Sogavare, had the power to make a decision to adopt a one-China policy. Then we can come back into our own political um, parties and we can see the power struggles there as each of the different factions are, are trying to elevate themselves and to have the power to make the decisions. Our world is obsessed with power. But this struggle for power is not something that's new. Right back in the Garden of Eden, it's almost like Adam and Eve were basically saying to God, yes, God, I've heard you. I've heard about what you've said, but we've got the power. They didn't use these words, but their actions demonstrated it. We've got the power to make our own decision, to go a different way. And as we come to this passage in Matthew chapter 2, again, I hope this passage sounds familiar to to you because it's the same passage we had last week as Murray and Mitch together unpacked some of those different questions around the wise men and the star. But today I want to have a look at a tale of two kings and to see the way the two different kings exercised their power in the world. So who was King Herod? Well, King Herod was not a Jew. He was of Idumean descent. That means he was an Edomite and the Edomites could trace their ancestry ancestry right back to Esau, right back to Esau. And we know what happened in the womb as Esau and Jacob were, were wrestling one another. There was a battle there. Esau, Edom became that tribe right down the way through those descendants. And what we do know is that Jesus, son of David, son of David, son of Jesse, from, the, from Jacob. And right there we have that battle almost being played out again uh, years and years later. Isaiah 11, 1 says, Then a shoot, the Messiah, will spring from the stock of Jesse, that is David's father, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And it goes on later in Isaiah chapter 11 to say, And that branch is going to crush Edom. It's going to crush Edom. It's going to crush the Assyrians. It's going to crush a lot of these other empires that shoot from Jesse. But King Herod wasn't going to let his kingdom be taken away. Who was Herod the Great? Herod the Great was a remarkably successful man. We hear a lot of bad things about Herod. But let's put his life into 
some sort of perspective for a minute. He was a, a remarkable and successful, powerful politician. He ruled Judea from about 37 BC to around 4 BC when Jesus was born. He got the title because of his great accomplishments all about infrastructure. Almost everything he touched turned to gold. He rebuilt and expanded the, the temple in Jerusalem. He actually, when the, the Holy Land, the coastline of the Holy Land is a very straight coastline, very uninteresting. And he had the idea that he would sink the hull of, of two big ships and they were sunk and then he used the, the hull of those two ships to build the foundations for ports and breakwaters and to establish something around that. And he was able to do that even before um, engineer extraordinaire David Polkinghorne gave him the design of how to do it. These things were done way, way, way back. And then he went on to uh, build the city of Caesarea. He built the city of Caesarea in 12 years. Obviously, he didn't build it on his own, but he orchestrated that. That happened under his rule. He built other cities like that too. In Jerusalem, he facelifted the entire city. In addition to an extravagant palace that he built for himself, he built a stadium. That stadium was capable of housing 300,000 people. Now, you put that in perspective of the Sydney Stadium. The one where we had the Olympics. 300,000 people in a stadium back then. It's an amazing achievement. He also, across the land, built uh, seven great fortresses. The one that's perhaps uh, best known is Masada, down around the Dead Sea, where he, could, where he could fortify the place, where he could protect his own administration. That's probably about where the good part of Herod stops. Uh, he certainly wasn't a family man. Um, although he did have ten wives. But then he executed his favourite wife, Mariamne. Now, I don't know what happened to the other nine of them. If he executed his favourite one, he executed three of his own sons because of suspected treason. He killed his mother-in-law, or perhaps we should say one of his mothers-in-law. His reputation was such that um, Emperor Augustus, over the whole Roman Empire, said, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. And the play on that was that a pig was hardly likely to be uh, slaughtered for household consumption in a Jewish land. And he probably, the pig probably had more chance of survival than Herod's son. I mean, this was a cold, callous and cruel king. And he knew that he was hated. So much so he was worried about the rejoicing that would happen on the day of his death. And so he invited his sister over as he was laying dying and he said, I want you to, to pull in all the, the religious leaders of the Jewish people and take them into the stadium and on the, on the t at the time I die, I want you to execute them because I know when I die, the place is going to be a cheering a lot but at least if you execute these people, the Jewish leaders, there'll be mourning on the day that I die. Now... Thankfully, that particular plot was thwarted and it didn't go ahead. But this was the type of man he was, powerful, doing everything he could to maintain control, to maintain his control, to have his power, to do things his way, completely paranoid, paranoid about who might step up to take that control. He had a distrust of anyone that might be seen as, a, as an opposition, as an, a threat, and he did away with them straight away. So killing the babies of Bethlehem 
would not have been a big thing for Herod. Telling the babies of Bethlehem wouldn't be. And that's where we find ourselves coming to this passage today. Herod got word from, the, about, from his people as the wise men came in to, uh, to visit him and they asked the question that shook him to the core. Where is the one who is born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. And obviously when he heard that, he thought he'd done away with everyone that was likely to be a threat. And now the threat seemed to be a newborn into his kingdom. So nothing was going to stop him doing all he could to take that threat away. It says the whole of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. Verse 3. Herod and the whole of Jerusalem. Why would the whole of Jerusalem be disturbed? Because when anyone is obsessed with power, they're not only a danger to themselves, they're a danger to all those others around them. And we've seen that in our world and we continue to see it in our world where people are holding on to power, doing anything they can to obliterate those that might be a threat to them. So here were these wise men. As Murray and Mitch reminded us last week, these wise men were were wealthy merchants and traders from the east, uh, probably from Babylon. It's interesting to note that if you uh, have a look at uh, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 50-odd, it'll tell you that 600 years before Jesus was born, that Daniel himself was the head of the wise men of the palace. So these were bright, bright people, gifted people. They were accustomed to dealing with kings. And that's why they approached King Herod first. They approached the upper class people because the upper class people would be able to afford the luxuries that they have. But they also obviously approached King Herod because they thought, well, surely a king is going to know where the king is, where this king that has been born to be king is likely to be. Who else would know but the king? Surely he might be coming through the royal household. There was no way that the wise men, as foreigners, would have believed that the king of the Jews, the saviour of the Lord, uh, saviour of the world, our Lord and saviour, would be born in such humble circumstances. Because even many Jewish people themselves were anticipating uh, someone that was going to reign as a militant, uh, militant king, a powerful king who would deliver them from the oppressive rule. So can you imagine how they would have felt when they arrived at this uh, dusty cave-like house? They went in search of a king and here they were coming to find Jesus in such humble circumstances. As uh, Murray and Mitch referred to last, uh, last week, the image we get on our Christmas cards is not altogether right. What does this passage say? When they came to the house and they saw the child, by the time the wise men got to where Jesus was, he would have been grown a little bit. That's why Herod decided he was going to do away with any child under the age of two. Because the wise men had seen the star. They'd had to travel from the east to get there. They've met with Herod and then they've got themselves to this house. And so by the time they got there, Jesus was perhaps a little toddler. But there was no doubt when they got into that house who they were in the presence of. And they bowed down and worshipped. What a difference. We see the way that Herod exercised his power and his control and his authority. And we compare that with what we know about Jesus and what we read about Jesus in the Gospels. Where Jesus had a power and authority and people could not understand where it came from. 
when we go through the book of Mark, so often the people said he speaks with such power and authority. They marveled at the power and the authority of the words of Jesus. They couldn't understand where it came from. And we know that Jesus used that power and authority to minister to people, to transform lives, to change the world even as he served others, even serving to death on a cross. What a contrast between two kings. Let me ask a question. Which king would you follow? Now, it's a dumb question really, isn't it? You look at me and you think, what do you mean, which king would we rather follow? The answer is always, you know, in church, either Jesus or the Bible, you know. You didn't have to think twice about that one. Didn't have to think twice about it by the way we saw the fruit of those two men. But let me ask another question. Which king are you following? Which king are you following? By default, I would suggest that we often step into the court of Herod. That's our human nature. That's our battle within. I know it's so true often in my own life. Sure, we can talk about the battles in the South China Sea and we can talk about the battles between the Russians and the Ukraine or in the Solomon Islands. We can talk about those battles there. But James tells us, James chapter 4, that the battles that go on with our heart are the battles that determine who we are following, where we are walking, how we're living our lives. See, I know there is some Herod kicking around inside me from time to time. He would come out when I would rather rule than serve, when I would rather own or buy rather than give away, when I'd rather be someone that was honoured rather than someone that honoured others, when I would see others as a threat rather than see others as people who are loved by God, made in the image of God and are to be included. I want to go back to uh, something Murray mentioned last week and he quoted N.T. Wright and N.T. Wright said something like this. I haven't read N.T. Wright's book, so Murray will correct me, I'm sure, if I'm wrong. When we lose focus on the kingship of Jesus, our theology is warped. Is that a fair paraphrase? Thanks, mate. Good. When we, when we lose focus on the kingship of Jesus, our theology is warped. And I believe that is so true. So the Herod inside us all wants our lives to be about us. My rights, my hopes, my dreams, my aspirations, my possessions, my power. There's something within us that happens. That's just the human nature. And I think that even as we come to Jesus, we can be guilty of that. We can come to Jesus and say, Lord, bless me. Bless me. Now, Keith Green wrote a song about that years ago. Bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. That's all I ever hear. Doesn't anyone ache? Anyone hurt? Anyone even shed a tear? He's talking about the fact that so often our Christian lives are about God blessing us rather than us living our lives in recognition that he is king. And our whole role, our whole call, is to bless the Lord and to bless the world through him. And I know it's easy to come to Jesus without taking him as Lord. We can grab hold of him as saviour in a way. 
I remember walking out. I was 15 at the time and uh, a fantastic sermon had just been preached uh, at church and it was all about the plagues of Egypt and it was all about the fact that um, Pharaoh hardened his heart and God, and, and, and God kept on doing these miraculous miracles. You know, these, the, the miraculous was there. And you know, Moses would go to Pharaoh and Pharaoh would say, I'll do it. And then Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then ultimately, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And this message that was preached was basically saying, you're sitting here today and you need to know Jesus. If you're feeling the tug of the Spirit of God, now's the time to respond because there might come a time when you don't get that tug anymore, when Jesus doesn't call you and when your heart is hardened. Then there was a song that played, Have you any room for Jesus? He who bore your load of sin. As he knocks and asks submission, sinner, won't you let him in? And I sat there with this thing going on in my heart and I knew that the Christian life was the way to live. And I knew I didn't want God to lock me out of eternity. And so I walked forward to take hold of Jesus. But on reflection, I walked forward because I wanted to take hold of eternal life. I didn't actually take hold of Jesus and the authority and the power of Jesus as my Lord. And it wasn't until about nine years later when it was just like the Spirit of God spoke to me and said, Brian, you're sitting on the fence. If, if I'm God, serve me. If you want to go and follow everything else that's going on in life, go and follow it. Don't mock me any longer. If I'm God, you serve me. And so it was then in my mid-20s for the first time in my life that I could say, God, I'm going to follow you. Whatever you want me to do, I will do. Wherever you want me to go, I will go. You are God and I am a worshipper. I am here to follow you. I wanted the Herod in my life gone. doesn't stop Herod, keep on coming back to raise his ugly head. But there was a difference for me that I recognised what it was to follow Jesus as Lord, as King. And this is what the wise men do. See, so often we, we can hear a prosperity gospel. Come to God and he'll bless you with everything. I believe God does bless with everything. I believe God pours out his prosperity on us. But the way that happens is when we take hold of Jesus as our king and as our Lord and we give our all to walk with him. The byproduct will be that our lives will be much better and much more filling. So the wise men recognised who Jesus was and they gave their gifts and they worshipped. So how do we worship? How do we give back to God? I mean, what can we give a God who obviously has everything? God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is God's. Everything except your life, unless you give it to him. Your trust, unless you give it to him. Your worship, your service, your abilities, your gifts, your talents. See, God doesn't have all of us unless we offer ourselves to God. And we say, Lord, here I am. Here I am, send me. Here I am, Lord, use me. 
Your way, my way, or God's way? That's the message that comes for us today as we look at the battle of Herod. Are we going to contain and maintain our control? We're going to say, Lord, it's all yours. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that the words we read in the Bible are just so, so true and so powerful, even today. And Lord, we know we battle with the things that are going to be best for us. We so often want to shore up our own lives and plan and, uh, and prosper and to do all these things. And Lord, you want that to happen for us. You want us to be planners and Lord, you've said that you will prosper us. But first and foremost, Lord, you call us to be worshippers. To be people who, like the wise men, recognise who you are. Recognise the gift of Jesus and make a decision to follow wholeheartedly. And so today, just in the quietness now, Lord, we will pause and just make our response to you. And we give you thanks, Lord, that our walk with you is a walk. It's a journey. You never leave us and you'll never forsake us. But, Father, you do want to challenge each one of us in this journey of life. And we say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to help others discover this channel. Check out the description if you want to find out more or get in touch with us at the Centre Dural. But in the meantime, praying for God's hand over you as you continue to step into everything Jesus has in store for your life. Be blessed.